Good afternoon, everyone. <laughs> We're having the video cut off. Welcome, Blaine Bartlett, my dear mentor. How are you? I'm doing absolutely wonderful today. Thank you, David. It's good to see I your see. shiny, beaming face. Yes, it's you know the lighting's been weird here, determined upon what we're doing, and uh, from the British Virgin Islands, I'm so delighted to have the co-founder of the Stanford Cultivation Program, and of course, the author of How We Work: Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind. Quite a combination of things uh, there, Dr. Weiss. Dr. Leah Weiss has joined us here. Welcome to Office Hours. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to hanging out with you guys. This is the right place to hang out. You got that right. <laughs> um, and, and you know, I'm actually right now researching and writing about recon reconciliation. And uh, in the context of reconciliation is what I believe the speed of thought and the speed of time, uh, the speed of light, in other words, time. And as I look through the title of How We Work, your book is about this reconciliation one of the most difficult counterintuitive conflictual things that exist between work and purpose uh making a dollar in purpose and how the grind or the effort or desire is intrinsically uh utilized to reconcile those two i believe creates the abundance or the fulfillment in what you call work i call it activity i get paid for that already makes it better for me um ah. In your book, you know, how do you deal with, you know, the great conflict that exists between people that cannot distinguish between basically work and play? Yeah, absolutely. Well, for me, I come back to this um, importance of purpose and the need that we all have to feel like our lives are being well spent to the degree that we can. And if our work can be an expression of the impact we want to have in the world, then, um, you know, we uh, we feel very differently about our day to day lives. Um, and the other really critical component of this is community, um, which is a, a big part of why the work I'm doing now is actually looking at how do we learn from athletes and think in terms of teams and forging these kinds of connections and communities, um, which make our lives so much more pleasurable and our work more effective. You know, the idea of work being effective and pleasurable, almost an oxymoron. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, the, the great resignation that everybody's talking about right now. Um, I've actually, you know, really am beginning to think of it more as a the great reimagining. Yeah, uh, reimagining of what could be. And to your point about, yeah, I, I want to know that my life is being well used, that I'm being, that my, yeah, we don't get you know, more time. I, I can't go to the bank and get more time. So how how is it being uh, invested? How is it being spent? And the idea of um, being able to approach work from the from the perspective that it is a meaningful environment in which I get to express who I am in a way that impacts, in a meaningful way, others and the planet itself. Your, your book, uh, I, I, I love the, uh, the title, How We Work, Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind. <laughs> and, and it's that embracing piece, uh, and with that comes the reclamation of sanity. 
can you talk a little bit, Leah, about you know, how compassion weaves into this? And I've got a bias towards this. I mean, this book over my shoulder here, David and I wrote this a couple of years ago, Compassionate Capitalism, uh, A Journey to the Soul of Business. Uh, how, do, how does compassion actually weave its way into what it is that you're you know, kind of you know, looking at uh, uh, out there in the environment right now? Absolutely. I think a big part of this is um, that we need to understand that we are humans and we experience emotional reactions to our work and our lives and pandemics and fear and loss and all of this. And, and that comes with us to our workplaces. So leaders, managers need to um, manage their businesses with an understanding that it's not a group of robots. It's people um, and we need to treat them as such. And the work is going to go better when the relationships are humanized and it's not sustainable to live in this world of, you know, hustle porn and dragging people down and burning them out and replacing them with the next. And the upside of this economy where there's a, a, a perceived dearth of workers is people need to be treated better or they're going to move on. Um, and so it's actually like puts this question into where it belongs, which is strategy for businesses. How are you going to attract and retain talent? And it's not by um, grinding your people down. And you, you know, are known, you know, especially at Stanford as a top expert to avoid burnout. And especially when we have so much opportunity uh, with technology, our economy, with the amount of dollars that are floating, the opening up of, of the world uh, to our own economy. And you co-founded Skylight, which specializes in using neuroscience itself in behavioral changes uh, to empower uh, leaders and prevent them from having this burnout. But I hear more and more from my clients and I know my mentor Blaine over there, he hears it as well as everybody's feeling overwhelmed. And you know, to that measure, I think that if we look at being overwhelmed as, wow, I'm finally understanding abundance that there's more than enough for everyone. There's more than enough jobs, there's more than enough money, there's more than enough. And instead of feeling burned out and overwhelmed, uh, we actually have some science and behavioral changes, uh, mindset changes uh, that can get very excited, passionate, purposeful, and even profitable uh, with the right way to look at things. Uh, how much is behavior in this transition or transformation that needs to happen with this overwhelming opportunity that exists? And how much is just latent in a quantum, you know, memory of neuroscience that we all, you know, are we're born with an energetic and genetic inheritance that creates our basement, but we can't get everybody to, to reach their, their ceiling or their potential because that's behavioral. Uh, how do these two things balance in being overwhelmed and burned out? I think acknowledging, you know, it's it's interesting hearing what you're both saying about burnout and the need for purpose and, and compassion is very consistent with what I how I read the research and what I'm hearing um, from folks that I think burnout isn't just a function of hours worked. It's a it can very often be about lack of meaning or about having to act at odds with our values and, and the moral injury or the pain we then experience. So when we think as leaders about 
creating this ongoing um, belief that the experience people are having of their work, their understanding why it matters and feeling connected to that isn't superfluous, that humans are not going to be able to engage. We have a crisis of engagement in workplaces, uh, and that's very much comes right back to the meaning and, and not just the meaning of the work itself, but if we care about, if the three of us are a team and we care about and respect each other, even if part of the work that we've got to do together isn't at the core of what lights us up and makes us excited, the fact that I want to come hang out with Blaine and I care about David and we're in it together itself creates purpose. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm imagining this is part of the secret sauce you two have been writing about and talking about. And I think the the upside to use the cliche of the silver lining of the pandemic is now mental health in the workplace is not perceived to be this like low on the list issue. It's actually front and center. And so I think there's an opportunity for people like us, for researchers and practitioners and HR leaders and strategic leaders to say, we're going to flip where our priorities are and we're going to get, um, this is for the sake of the business, not at odds with our business needs. You know, I, I saw something today, I uh, came across one of my news feeds about, we finally achieved work-life balance and now we're being asked to come back to work. Yes, I saw that. <laughs> and it's kind of like, what's wrong with this model? Okay. The I, I do a lot of work with physicians. Uh, I'm on the teaching faculty of the American Association for Physician Leadership. And physician burnout is a big deal, particularly in the last year and a half, 18 months or so. Um, and in my experience, you know, to, and this is the, a point that you made just, I think, really well, burnout isn't a consequence of working long, hard hours. Exactly. Burnout is a consequence in large part of being disconnected to something that's meaningful to me at a personal level. And if I've got something that's meaningful to me, boy, yeah, you, you slip a pizza under the door. I'm going to be happy as a clam. Just let me, <laughs> just let me do what I'm doing. Um, but if that meaning goes away, you know, all bets are off. So I think part of the challenge, and I'd love your take on this, part of the challenge that business leaders uh, face today is how do we bring what's meaningful to the business? How do we frame it? How do we, how do we invite people to participate in what's meaningful to the business in a way that ends up being meaningful to the individual? And that's a different conversation than leaders are typically asked to engage in. You know, the command and control model here doesn't work. So I'd love your take on just kind of how you see that unfolding. Absolutely. Well, I, I think your point is well made. And, and actually, I'm a daughter of a surgeon and a younger sister of a surgeon and spend a lot of time in healthcare at Stanford and elsewhere and agree with you very much. Um, and I think, you know, even if we look within the context of healthcare, there's no lack of purpose in physicians, but the moral injury that people are experiencing as our systems are breaking down, which was happening before the pandemic, but even worse now, um, more, more clear and more visible. Um, I think this is the step that leadership needs to take to understand that you can, people cannot go on forever um, when they feel fundamentally misaligned with the cultures and the organizational values. And the more purpose-driven they are, it doesn't necessarily get you off the hook um, in the case of physicians, but when you're looking at work that is perhaps less intrinsically meaningful. Um, those of us who, who don't have jobs where we're saving lives literally day in and day out, 
we still have this need. And this is one of the things I talk to my MBA students about. And when we're working in organizations, you can't be too busy to talk to people about about what they're doing and why it matters. Because if you do that, they're not gonna be engaged. They're not gonna care. They're not gonna give their all and why should they? But people mistake this as like, as, as something that you do once a year in a retreat, um, not something that you have to come back to day after day, week after week and keep that in the fabric of yeah. your community, your work family, your department and so forth. How do you plan that out? Um, I think is exactly smart leaders and smart organizations. They tell stories. Storytelling is a big part. Data feeding back to people, um, the wins that they're having, the, the impact that they're having. All of that is really important. You can't just be externally focused um, if you want to keep your people and keep them caring. Yeah. Caring at scale. Dr. Laura, <clears throat> Leah Weiss, uh, thank you so much for helping us understand how to live with purpose, which is so essential today, reclaiming our sanity, uh, getting rid of the interference between us and what we are truly about and embracing the enjoyment of what I call the consistent, persistent pursuit of our potential, as you describe as the daily grind. Thank you for <laughs> writing the book, How We Work, uh, making activity we get paid for easier, better and more available to many, many more. Check out Skylight, by the way, with a Y, S-K-Y-L-Y-T-E dot I-O, and understanding if you feel burnout or want to know how high-performing leaders and managers prevent that, Leah is our person. Thank you so much, Doctor. We appreciate you and have you back. It was great to hang out with you both. Really enjoyed our time. Take care. Stay well. Hang out with you too. <laughs> yeah, same here. I look forward to another conversation. Yeah, I love. Yeah, I people. like that stuff. I, that, I mean, yeah, today's guest lineup is you know. Yeah, about they line up. They line up. We can bring bring Dr. Greg on here. Dr. Greg yeah. Hammer. They they line up in Very one good. way because I want to thank uh, Dr. Leah and Dr. Greg Hammer. Uh, you know, let him in, Matt. Or are you guys all frozen? He's in. I think okay. I'm in. Hey, there he is. Yeah, he's in. Okay, good. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I owe you and Dr. Leah as well, you know, a, a great amount of credit for my success because I think part of the reason that I enjoy the daily grind for so long and have had experienced such great success and fulfillment in my career is that I've had a huge chip on my shoulder ever since Stanford rejected me for undergrad and law school. And I wanted to prove to my siblings I was better than them. Uh, who both, you know, just despite me turned down Stanford and went to Harvard and Penn uh, just because they wanted to say their backup school wasn't, you know, even my dream school. But uh, there's a lot of Stanford going on today. Uh, Oregon Duck over there, Blaine Bartlett. So we got to hold our own with these geniuses. Anyway, I want to welcome Dr. Greg Hammer, Greg Hammer, MD. Uh, he wrote a book, which is right up my alley, Gain Without Pain. Uh, in the Happiness Handbook for Healthcare Professionals. You cannot put a non-negotiable higher than the Happiness Handbook utilizing health uh, care professionals for me because uh, game without pain is my philosophy. I think too many people manifest mm -hmm. that. And I want to start with the acronym of G-A-I-N, probably one of the most used uh, acronyms meaning the, the letters there for so many people have used it in different ways. What does game mean to you, uh, Dr. Greg Hammer? Well, great to see you both again, first of all. 
Gain in uh, the context of my book means uh, it stands for what I think are the four pillars of spiritual and emotional well-being. So much as sleep, exercise, and nutrition are the tripod of our physical well-being, gratitude, acceptance, intention, and non-judgment, I think, are very simply the pillars of our spiritual and emotional well-being. And, uh, you know, they're very interrelated. Uh, so, you know, we can talk more about that, but, um, yes, I think that, uh, you know, if I make comment, I was interested in listening in on the, uh, last five minutes or so of your conversation, uh, together and with Leah. And, uh, I would define just as we get to burnout, I would define it as, uh, a result of chronic stress, which mm -hmm. induces physical and emotional exhaustion. So, you know, I appreciate uh, the comment that uh, if your work is meaningful, um, you know, I like the slip the pizza under the door uh, comment. Uh, but I would say actually that you need to get really at chronic stress in order to understand, prevent, and treat burnout. And furthermore, in the Stanford WellMD rubric, and I'm a member of that club, if you will, um, we see professional fulfillment or alternatively burnout as a product of three domains. So if you can imagine a pie cut in thirds, one third is the culture in which we work. So the culture of medicine in our case, the second domain out of three is the efficiency of our practice. And the third domain is personal resilience. And I think we need to address all three. So uh, I am most interested in personal resilience. That's the one for which I can take responsibility for myself. But you have to have a culture. And I think maybe this gets to the comment about doing meaningful work is working in a culture that resonates. And so if you're working in a culture which doesn't uh, value the uh, individual's role, uh, perhaps uh, stigmatizes getting mental health help, for example, uh, has a lot of bias and uh, treats people unfairly based on their uh, political beliefs, ethnicity, et cetera, then, you know, it's going to be hard to be professionally fulfilled. Also, if no matter how resilient you are, and even if the culture in which you work is conducive, if you're working in a very inefficient organization, so for me as an intensive care doctor or as an anesthesiologist, you know, if I'm in the hospital for an hour and a half extra every day because we we don't hire enough people to turn the operating rooms over appropriately, um, you know, there's a lot of breakdown in our computer software platform and I can't get my notes written um, and I have to take a lot of work home and I'm, I'm still in the hospital late. You know, it's going to be hard to be fulfilled. And, and so there's burnout can result uh, uh, additively uh, from a negative culture from a very inefficient practice system. And also, of course, depends on our personal resilience. So if we're not resilient, um, we're already halfway to burnout. Yeah. Yeah. The, the idea of resilience, I, and I love your, your, your framing of this, uh, Greg, it's, um, yeah, there's a question that arises for me when I look at your GAIN acronym. Um, and it, and I think it does go right to the the, uh, the 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 conversation around resilience, acceptance, and non-judgment. Yeah, they're almost oxymoronic. 
uh, when 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 you kind of look at them prima facie. I mean, just you know, without without doing a deeper dive, how do those two elements actually combine to contribute to resilience? Sure. Well, why don't we start with G, if you don't mind? We can start with gratitude. Okay, perfect. And, and yeah. gratitude is just—it's empiric that gratitude is intrinsic to happiness. And I can say that, for example, one can be poor and happy. We've all seen examples of that. There's actually a film called Happy, I believe, which is I'd recommend to anybody, but it profiles a family in India that lives in a hut, for example, and they're happy. One can be physically challenged and happy, but you won't see somebody who's ungrateful and happy. And so that just kind of goes to show that gratitude is really central. And I was talking uh, with another host the other day about well, you know, what if somebody is diagnosed with cancer and they have a, a you know, rough course and now they're at the end of their life? How can they be grateful? Well, there are ways to be grateful even under that circumstance. And no matter how bad things are, they can always be worse. And we can be grateful for that fact and grateful for the loved ones in our life and grateful for the work that we've been able to do and so on. But gratitude is central. Acceptance uh, in the context of gain, as I've framed it, um, means that we recognize rather than resist that there's pain in our life. I don't think we can be present and happy if we resist that there is pain in our life. And I have a formula in the book, which is suffering equals pain times resistance. So pain is inevitable. Okay. I mean, I had chronic back pain for 10 years. I happen to have a very successful quote, minimally invasive operation a year and a half ago, and I'm fine now. I mean, I'm grateful for that. But uh, I lived with the pain. I couldn't change it. So as the serenity prayer would have it, we have to discern between what we can change and what we can't. We don't just accept and lie down and take it. We first have to decide that there's nothing we can do about it before we work on accepting it. So, um, for example, I lost my son at the age of 29, four years ago. And Oh, sorry. Very painful. And, you know, but I realized I can resist it. I can try not to think about it. I can pretend it didn't happen. There's lots of ways to resist. And my suffering will be magnified. So I sat in my game meditation every morning and visualized my chest opening, my heart opening. And I brought this pain closer and closer until I really had merged with it. And I recognized that I could live with this pain. Mm -hmm. and, and in this sense, the more we accept that, which represents pain that we cannot change, the less we suffer. And I think, you know, the, those that we have considered truly enlightened, whether it's Jesus or the Buddha or uh, whomever, I think they have risen to a point where they fully, fully accept that which is. And therefore, although there's pain in their life, they, they don't suffer. So that's mm -hmm. acceptance in the in the context of gain. Um, it's actually recognizing that there's pain and intentionally living in a way that represents acceptance. And that gets us to intention. And that is that our brains are wired in certain ways that tend to veil or interfere with or preclude our happiness. For example, we have a negativity bias. We tend to remember and embrace the negative and, and kind of forget about the positive. That's something that we all have as a property of a brain function. Um, we could explain it on an evolutionary basis or teleologically, but it is what it is. And the good news is our brain, brains have this property called neuroplasticity, 
So if we focus purposefully on rewiring our brains to be more positive and present, we can actually change the way our brain physiology works. That's what neuroplasticity is. And so that's intention. Non-judgment means that we recognize that all of us have another property the way our brains function. We analyze things in our environment and we're always comparing one thing to another uh, because of our negativity bias and this judgment comparison property that we seem to embrace. We judge ourselves most harshly. There are lots of data showing that we judge ourselves much more harshly than we would judge a friend. And that's actually a, a one cognitive behavioral approach to being more self-compassionate is to imagine that we're actually talking to a friend rather than evaluating ourselves. And so non-judgment in this framework means we recognize that these judgments that we constantly make are fruitless and we can drop those judgments. So when I'm doing my morning gain meditation, I'm actually, when I get to the end and gain, which is non-judgment, I visualize one of these beautiful NASA images of the earth, apparently just suspended in space. And I think to myself, this earth is beautiful, but it is fundamentally neither good nor bad. There's no judgment I need to make about this planet. It just is exactly what it is. There's all kinds of stuff going on on the surface, but I don't have to judge it as good or bad. It just is what it is. And if I feel that way about the earth and I turn to myself, and as I'm breathing deeply and slowly, I acknowledge that I too am simply who I am. I am what I am. I am not good. I'm not bad. And in that sense, we drop the judgment. And I think this enables us to see things exactly as they are. So this is how acceptance and, and non-judgment, although they're interrelated, that's how they, uh, I would explain them. And it was an amazing explanation. It's so surprising to me as we finish up, uh, Greg, you know, I have probably done more challenge been on stage with this challenge to say thank you before you go to bed or when you wake up and utilizing thought leaders like yourself and Blaine and Deepak and Sadhguru and, you know, people get mad at me when I say Oprah Winfrey, who's done a ton in, you know, in this space of gratitude. Um, people get upset, like, why would Oprah matter? Well, because she's trying to teach people the missing component of the most obvious, easiest, cheapest way, fastest way to change your life. The it's 0.1 seconds, and it's proven by all from Einstein, who also, by the way, talked about gratitude extensively in a scientific way. One of the smartest individuals, academic individuals in the world. But where I want all of us, Blaine, Dr. Hammer, and I, we, we need to help people understand one word, coherence. And, and coherence is two things. Mm -hmm. One, remember thank you when things are good and bad. With no with all the gain acronyms that Dr. Hammer has shown us today. Remember number one. And then two, the second part of coherence is do it, right? Don't, don't just remember it, but actually do it. Say thank you and utilize gain without pain in your life. And you will expand, grow, accelerate, and be happy. Your guide to be happy is all based off of gaining without pain. But in its essence, we all need to be on a campaign of coherence to allow people the easiest way 
like buying this book to remember and to execute on it. Dr. Greg Hammer, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone get yes. out there. You can live your life and with gain without pain. Come back and visit me Dana, again. Dana, thank you both very much. It's, it's always great to be with you. I hope to join you soon. Absolutely. You you. Wonderful Notice speaking with you, Greg. Notice how I was grateful for not getting into Stanford and I made it uh, a, a great <laughs> thing for me. <laughs> Absolutely. I think you could have first out of a yeah. I love it. First thank you. All right. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Take Pac care. 12 live, though. No Back 12. All right. Here we go. Last but not least, Louis, Louis. K2, Louis. CEO of hey. Covio. What's going on, Louis? Hello. Oh, got you on mute right now, Louis. Louis, it's hard to hear when you're on mute. You're right. Not bad for the guy. Not bad How for the guy both? who had the big. Not bad for the guy who had the biggest IPO in in Canada. That's uh, the largest software IPO in Canada. We got him to figure out so we can hear him uh, taking his company public. And what I want to talk about is something that you know in America is, is a huge issue: the lessons learned from being a founder. You know, so many think people think it's so easy uh and it happens so quickly um and you've had great great success in your in in your business i mean i think you know oracle acquired your business for over two billion if i'm not uh mistaken but you're not an overnight success i've never met one so i thought maybe you could help us with a few lessons that you've learned in founding of uh talio uh and of course in, in other startup uh that you know, you've been involved I with I think your question is so right on and so interesting and, uh, and, and to all the entrepreneurs, you know, there is never, um, any destination is the way I would phrase it. It's all about the journey. And, uh, unless you focus on the, typically when you focus on the journey, you get to better destinations anyway. Uh, that's how I would, I would frame it. And, uh, and it's really, you're, you're so correct. There, 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 there might be overnight successes, um, but they might not last. And, um, you know, I, I kind of like uh, an often quote, and I would not take credit for that quote. This is Zig Ziglar. But, uh, you know, one said there, there are no elevators to success. Uh, you have to take the stairs. And, uh, and the, those stairs are one customer at a time, um, you know, one good action at a time, one, one person at a time. It's really all about people at the end of the day. And I'm, I'm, I'm in tech. I've spent my life in tech, but I've always thought about our companies as, as, as fundamentally we're, we're a people organization with technology wrapped around it. And, it, and this is really how we, um, you know, we think. You know, uh, one of the ways that I've defined an organization is that it's just simply a collection of people that are in relationship. I mean, that's, that's probably the simplest definition I can come up with. Collection of people that are in relationship. They're in relationship, obviously, with each other, but they're also in relationship of vision, values, work process. They're in, you know, they're in relationship with anything and everything in the organization. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be in, very interested here, Ali, in just your comment on this. Mo in my experience, most leaders, or not say most, many leaders do not pay attention to the qualitative nature of these varied relationships. And as a consequence, they end up shooting themselves in the foot. Because if I pay attention to the quality of the relationships, if, if the relationships are working well, the company's got a pretty good shot at being successful. 
Yeah, you led one of the most successful IPOs in Canadian history. And I, it wasn't an accident. You paid attention to some things that were different than I think than other people paid attention to. And you've done stuff in tech outside of Silicon Valley that uh, also kind of sets you apart in terms of uh, who you are and what you've been able to accomplish. Where does the relationship piece come into play here? And how did you learn to pay attention to it? Because you did. Yeah. Yeah, you know, in 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 a number of ways, and uh, and I, I I agree with you so much because you you know you 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 don't build an organization unless you can really mobilize people around a common purpose, and that's you know one way to create that relationship is obviously to inspire a set of common beliefs. Uh, and, and a purpose that is meaningful, that is substantiated, you know, uh, and, and that is that is truly uh, valuable, you know, from a from a human perspective. Um, then then I would overlay on top of that, you know, because, you know, maybe of the nature of the business uh, we're in when that happens. Um, you know, that's how, uh, that's also how you, when, when, what, what I mean, when you mobilize people around a common purpose, you create, um, you know, naturally, uh, innovation because innovation stems from human collisions fundamentally. And, uh, so unless, unless, uh, you know, you can create that environment and, and, uh, for me, there is really one word. Um, to describe it all from a, a leadership perspective, because we don't do anything that is, uh, quite frankly, I'm always uh, pride my, I always pride myself, uh, you know, of being the dumbest guy in the crowd. If anything, we know how to surround ourselves with, you know, much smarter people who can tell us, you know, what to do. But that one word is care. Uh, to the extent that uh, our people understand that we care and we truly do. Uh, we're, we're always, you know, challenged, obviously, to find ways, uh, you know, to care better uh, about every individual. The, from that perspective, the pandemic was a key leadership challenge if you really took it seriously because people were hurting every day in, in different ways. And, uh, and that was far more important. In fact, if you wanted to, the, the business was almost, was almost an outcome. Uh, of that duty of care, and and if you do, if you if you run a business like that, um, then then people will reward you tremendously, you know, th with their engagement, with their ideas, with their creativity, uh, which which obviously compounds to to great value. And yes, we've been able to create a few businesses of of um, of a few billion dollars of of value. Uh, not not doing anything more than uh, bringing people together and caring about them and, and maybe inspiring them towards connecting them to your point, to creating that relationship to the common goal, to the common purpose, because people, people need a purpose, you know? Well, I, I owe apology, Louis, to, to you and Blaine, because Blaine always taught me that if uh, you're the smartest one in the room, you're in the wrong room. So I apologize yep. to both of you that I blew it for you. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but moreover, last question, Louis. Um, you know, I, I was blessed and cursed to be a CEO of a public company, a very large one in the phone industry years. In, but unfortunately, early Sarbanes-Oxley in America, only 31 years old. Um, and it was interesting because I, I, I learned a different uh, 
purpose of being a CEO. And the new purpose that I was taught was shareholder value. And the construct that I took on as a young CEO to create shareholder value was markets, understanding the market much better than I would if, if I was the CEO of a private company, market makers, understanding how that worked, which I no interest at all in private companies who market makers are. Um, and then, of course, what I was concerned about was margins. And uh, the face of a public company takes on a different role when you realize that you and your objective is shareholder value. And that's, you know, the litmus test of regardless of the future, regardless, you know, it's almost like being a football coach of a college that has yeah. really great freshmen. And you're like, yeah, but in five years, we're going to win the national championship. You know, the alumni don't care, right? And neither do no. your shareholders. So how did that change for you? No, well, that's, that's, that's true. But I mean, I've been, I've been running a, a public company for, for, uh, for some, some time now. Um, and, and I think uh, the way, the way I explain it is, is, you know, when, I think when any CEO or, or responsible CEO or management team for that matter wakes up in the morning, you think you really think about three things. And I would argue in that order, you're, you're people. You cannot build a great company unless everyone is well. So that's 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 the first thing. No, no great company, no, none, no great company is ever created when people go to the hospital are overworked, are not respected and et cetera. So first thing, you're people. Number two, that the fact that you take care of that will actually percolate and transpire to the second important thing is your customers. And, 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 and you know, you're in business to bring value to customers. If you don't bring value, then you shouldn't be in, in business or you should get the creative minds to actually find, find a valuable purpose and something that's valuable to customers. And you know what? Number three is, the, is, is, is shareholders. And it's really in that order. Uh, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, for, uh, and, and, and if you take care of the former two, the third will take care of itself. And of course, you need to worry about it. You know, you, yes, there is such a thing as growth rate and gross margin and, uh, and uh, you know, customer acquisition cost and all the, the myriads of metrics that you can have in a business. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, these are if you focus on these these very important and very simple principles typically shareholder value creation takes care of itself now if you think about shareholder value either short term or as a destination again an ipo is a great example how many people look at an ipo as an as a liquidity event this is ridicule this is absolutely ridicule an ipo is the end of the beginning really that's that's what it yeah. is it's 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 really you know it's a financing event uh it's a serious event you're right it's uh, it used to be starbucks and um and nowadays it's ifrs and it's uh it's dealing with um you know uh the attorneys and the short sellers and all the predators out there and everything that you got to be prepared for um but you know that's all that's all manageable um but at the end of the day when you have great people very engaged on a common towards a common purpose towards creating customer value and you really partner and respect your customers the same way because you can't behave differently anyway internally and externally and you partner with your customers and create that value and etc 
um, you know, your innovation rate uh, tends to be higher than, uh, than, than your competitors. Your value tends to be higher than your competitors. And then you're growing faster and you're going to create shareholder value. And, and you got you to gotta let, let shareholders understand that this is a long game. And uh, as far as we're concerned, that's, you know, I was just, I'm just out of a road show, as you said, um, you know, went, uh, you know, took, took, took Coveo, our, our, um, our company here public um, in the AI space in Canada. And this is what we explain to shareholders, um, you know, that for us, it's a, it's a long game. It's about building a global tech leader. Um, and, 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 and this is a long journey that will, will continue. And of course, you know, you've got you've got um, you know reviews along the way, and um, and and uh, you got to make sure that the metrics follow and all of that. But that's not where companies fail, in my opinion. Yeah, and um, you uh, you good. definitely have played the long game with your know, second unicorn with Coveo, uh, known as the relevance company, and staying relevant uh, with your SaaS platform uh, with right. personalization solutions, creating a new digital experience. And we know, uh, I bet another philosophy of mine, I bet on the jockey and you're one hell of a jockey, Louis. We appreciate you joining <laughs> us. Everyone check out Coveo, Louis Tate my friend, an incredible entrepreneur, not one, but two unicorns. Check them out. Thank you for joining us and giving Merci us- Merci beaucoup. Merci beaucoup, yeah. Merci, thank, you, thank you very much. Again. Incredible Bye -bye. entrepreneur thank you today. Great conversation. Yeah, come back, come back again. Oh, absolutely, good I'm stuff. Always, I'm blown away by the people we get on here. You know, it, yep. it, it's it, it is amazing. I mean, these are amazing individuals, and uh, I can't wait to hear your takeaway to, of the day because my mind's spinning. Oh, I boy, I, I mean, it's you know, <laughs> all three of them for me talked about yeah you know, gratitude in in little bit different ways. And uh, gratitude, yeah, gratitude is the way that we connect to the source of life. I mean, it truly is. I mean, if I want to experience aliveness in my life, gratitude is the metric or not the metric. It's the mechanism that makes that possible. And you know, all three of our guests today spoke about that you know, in their own way uh, as how they actually see the world actually um yeah, coming together in a, in a holistic generative way. I mean, it, it's this idea of gratitude. Yeah, I know that it's a major focus of the work that uh, you're doing and you know, everything that you talk about with the, the clients that you work with and the, in the talks that you give comes down ultimately to gratitude. Um, and the idea of taking gratitude and really recognizing it for what it is, it's my connection to spirit. It's my connection to soul. It's my connection to life. And when I step into that, everything becomes possible. And gratitude, I mean, I'm, I'm, I can't, it's impossible for me to be grateful for something that I don't experience. If I want to experience abundance in my life, I go to gratitude because the universe is abundant. I'm grateful in the context of connecting to the universe. And then my life becomes abundant. And it becomes rich in all sorts of ways. That's that's the takeaway today. It it's, yeah, shows gratitude. up in a lot of different forms. Well, good. That's uh, I want to reiterate to everyone, join my 14-day gratitude challenge that I have. I'm giving a Dave Melcher package to anyone that completes it. 
so please, my email is below david at dmelter.com for that gratitude challenge. My takeaway is simple. That's right, simple. Every simple. one of our guests, Leah, Greg, yeah. and Louie, hyper-educated, hyper-intelligent, hyper-purposeful people made it simple, right? Mm -hmm. It was just these simple things of, you know, enjoying your daily grind to be happy. Uh, you know, yep. a simple thing, you know, to, to wellness and have a simple way to, you know, create a unicorn, three things, people, right? Like everything was simple, but you can't get to simple yep. overnight, right? No. In fact, a lot of the great thought leaders have always said, if you can't explain it simply, then you don't know it. If everyone can't hear what you say, then you don't know it fully either. So Let's keep it simple. Let's keep it grateful. Please join my 14-day gratitude challenge. Let's all reach out to the mindset mastermind of my friend, Blaine Bartlett, learn.blainebartlett.com forward slash LMM. He's been my mentor. People ask me all the time, where do you learn this shit? Right there to my left. That's where I learn this shit and I make it my own. And we have terrific conversations here on Office Hours every Thursday. I'm so grateful for you. So grateful for Cynthia. Love the books behind you. Enjoy your island. I'll enjoy mine. Can't you wait do. to have you here and next time. Real quick plug. We've got Office Hours Bloomberg TV edition tomorrow. Uh, I am fortunate enough to be co-hosting with you again. We've got some Thank incredible you. guests. So we need to have folks tuning in. It's an amazing show. You wouldn't believe our numbers. They're awesome on Bloomberg TV, 830 Pacific time. Check it out on Bloomberg TV. You can uh, see Blaine and I and other great guests, incredible guests. Thank you so much for reminding me, Blaine. Remember, most importantly, everybody, be kind to your future self and do good deeds. Join me on the 14-day challenge of that email right there, david at dmelzer.com. Have a great night. Thank you, Maddie.